All of us, Father, play a part in your plan for a time, but only you are eternal and only you are necessary. And, and Father, we must always keep in mind that it is your church, your body, your purpose. And we all have an opportunity by your grace to be a part of it, but none of us, Father, are the most important piece. And I thank you, Lord, that you always call and gift men and women to serve you, to fill the needs that exist, and that you've done that in this case with men who could preach and others who could serve in other ways, and you'll continue to do that. Each of us, Father, are here for your purpose for a time. But what a glorious opportunity it is, and I thank you, Lord, that we do serve a God who gives those opportunities, who equips us and who guides us into all righteousness. I thank you, Father, for the way you've equipped us by your word so that we cannot go into our life in ignorance, so that we would not show up on our judgment day unaware of what your expectations are, so that we may be prepared to please you. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us these things, but now, Lord, I also call upon you to impress upon our hearts the importance to live according to what we've learned, to be men and women who don't just hear, but also do the things we know. And in the scripture this morning, Father, I turn now into 1 Corinthians, once again expecting and and asking that the Spirit would be the teacher here. That the Lord, through His Spirit in each of us, would also be uh, convicting, opening our eyes, opening our ears. I pray these things because if it's not the case that you would do these things, then we would have no purpose in being here. For my words cannot change and my thoughts are not important. So let all of us, Father, be at your feet. Open and attentive to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's been a while, so let's remember what we've done. In the first ten verses of chapter 12, Paul has begun to patiently teach the church about the nature and the purpose of spiritual gifts. You remember a while ago I mentioned that the book itself is a book of admonishment, and I defined the term admonishment. Admonishment is the combination of teaching and correction. Teaching with correction. And in this topical area, this topic of spiritual gifts, so far all Paul has done is teach. And he will continue to do so this morning. But as we turn the corner and leave chapter 12 after this week, Paul begins to make that turn with us from teaching into correction. But before the correction can take place, there has to be a basis of understanding, some common understanding of what is truth. So we're still in that phase of teaching concerning spiritual gifts. And what we've learned so far are essentially three things. We've learned that spiritual gifts come as a consequence of our salvation. As we believe, we're equipped and our gifts are present with us from the very moment of salvation. We learned that at the beginning of this chapter. Then secondly, we learned that there is only one spirit working in us. He manifests himself in different ways, but it's always the same spirit doing the work. And he manifests differently because there's a variety of ministries. And a variety of ministries requires a variety of gifts. And the spirit assigns those gifts to the body as he wills, according to his purposes. No one can say they've been assigned some greater worth within the body of Christ because they obtain some particular gift. All gifts are equal in that respect. All gifts are necessary. All gifts are purposeful. They all come from the same spirit. And lastly, the third thing we've learned so far is they come for the purpose of the common good. They do not come to show off our own abilities. They don't come so that we can stand out in some unique way. They're not supposed to be exhibited as evidence that we're special or different. The point of them is that they benefit others by how we use them in the edification of the body, drawing attention not to ourselves, but to Christ. Now, at the end of our last session, 
Paul listed the nine gifts in this particular chapter. And as I taught last time, those were examples of how the Lord can assign very different kinds of gifts, very different manifestations of the spirit. But yet they're all coming from the same Lord and they're all coming for a common purpose, that is to edify the body. And then at the very end of the list in verse 11, which is where we'll start this morning, we read that the same spirit works all these things according to the will of God. Let's pick up there again. Verse 11, he says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Paul summarizes his list of examples by repeating what is essentially his main point at this stage of his discussion. He says the gifts of the spirit are always a work of the spirit. I want you to notice that the gifts of the spirit are always the work of the spirit. You cannot create your own gifts, even through hard work or practice or even just by asking for it. You cannot create the outcome of achieving or obtaining a certain spiritual gift. God assigns, Paul says right here, assigns to each believer the gift or gifts he wills, the Lord wills. And we don't get a choice in the matter. Our gifts are assigned by the Spirit, and as we've already learned earlier in this chapter, they are assigned at the moment we become a believer. There's no later point of assignment. There's no later point of signing up. It's not a lottery. You get what he wills. You get it at your point of salvation. Now you work with that. We cannot create a gift through persistence or effort. In fact, just think of the word itself. By definition, the word gift means something given to us, not something we obtain in our own power, not something we earn, not something we lobby for. No one can earn a gift. No one can learn a gift. If it's possible to learn a gift, it's a work of the flesh. If it's possible to earn it, it's a work of the flesh. So even if you hone some talent to perfection, that doesn't make it a gift. Only if it comes from the spirit is it a spiritual gift. You'll know a spiritual gift when you see it, I like to say, because you'll recognize that you cannot obtain a spiritual gift no matter how hard you try. You can mimic, yes, Parrots mimic conversation, but that doesn't mean they're actually having conversation. Because you can mimic. I can teach all day, but if I don't have the spiritual gift of teaching, it won't have the insight or the power to convict like a spiritual gift of teaching will have. Now, on the other hand, you can develop or mature an existing spiritual gift. The spirit who equips us, he will also call us to work with him to develop our gift to its greatest effectiveness. And Paul makes this point as well in 2 Timothy verse 1, 2 Timothy 1, 6. He says, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Kindle afresh. His point is to take what you've been given and make the most of it. So if I'm gifted to teach, as I believe I am, then I must still apply myself to learning the word to delivering it with some kind of polish, to being effective in a speaking role. It doesn't just come as a matter of me sleeping and waking up one day and I, here I am in the pulpit. If I'm gifted to pray, well, I have to have the discipline to solicit prayer requests so that I have material in which to pray and then to devote time to prayer. Otherwise, I squander the gift. And if I have a gift to serve, then I must seek opportunities to become useful to others in the body. I've got to volunteer my time. I've got to set my priorities in my calendar so I can serve. We see these things naturally. We understand these things. 
So when we develop our gifts in these ways, we need to be clear. We're not producing these things out of nothing. There is a difference between someone thinking they can acquire a gift in their own power versus the one who is gifted developing it and maturing it. Without the spirit working in us, we might be able to mimic behavior, but we'll never produce the same results. And friends, I think that is the ultimate criteria for knowing the difference between man-made effort and true spiritual gifting. It's less in the doing of it and more in the results of it that we understand whether it's from God or not. I used the example, I think, a few weeks ago of evangelism. Even though I can say exactly the same words that someone else might say in an attempt to persuade someone to believe the gospel, if they have the gift of evangelism and I don't, their words will be effective when mine won't. And there's no explanation for that, except that God chose to use them when he didn't choose to use me, and his choice is reflective of his gifting them a certain way. Now, that doesn't mean I can't evangelize. It doesn't mean I won't find some measure of success. But it does mean in relative terms, there'll be no comparison. Everyone will look at this person, if they're Billy Graham, and know that that's what he does, and everyone will look at me and see what I do and say, well, that's what Steve does, and they'll never confuse us for each other's gift. Because the results make so clear what the Spirit did in each of us. So these are the things we should understand as Paul finishes his list in verse 11, that the gifts are diverse for good purpose. They come as a consequence of God's will, and they are the work of the Spirit, not the work of flesh. From verse 11 now, Paul focuses his teaching on his main concern, and it becomes an entry point into the second half of this conversation, moving from teaching to correction. This starts now to turn in verses 12 and onward. Look at verse 12. Paul says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? This is probably Paul's most famous analogy in all of his letters. The analogy of a human body to the body of Christ, to the corporate gathering of the church. And in verse 12, he begins with his premise. His premise is very simple. And I think this is why the analogy resonates. People understand it so easily. It makes such perfect sense. He starts with the premise that the human body is a single organism. And yet, clearly, it's constructed of many members. The term Paul uses, the word members, melos, it just literally means parts. So you and I are parts. And, of course, we don't perceive ourselves this way. When you think of yourself, you don't perceive yourself as a bunch of parts stuck together. You perceive yourself as an integrated whole, a single person, a single body. And more to the point, we instinctively appreciate that all the parts of our body are equal and all are important to us and all work in unison. There is no part of your body that you would voluntarily choose to live without. Your eye, your ear, your feet, there's no part you'd live without. You might use some parts of your body more than you use others, But when a certain body part is required, it becomes all important in that moment. Now, in the second half of this verse, verse 12, Paul draws the comparison that he wants to make out of the analogy. So he starts with your body is a whole made of parts and he draws the analogy and he says, similarly, the body of Christ. So within the church, we find many individuals. Each of us are different. And in that respect, we're all parts of this body. 
Each of us have a different spiritual gift, which is his main point, And those spiritual gifts manifest differently according to their purpose. But the collection of individuals that make up the body of Christ, whether we're talking about the universal church or whether we're talking just about this particular instance of the church right here, in both cases, we are made up of individuals, but we operate as a single entity, a single body of Christ. The church is not one person. The church is everyone. And that's why Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. I don't think that verse is really understood in some circles because I think to some it means when I get together with other Christians, then Jesus is working there with us. That's not what it means. For he is with you even when you are alone. Jesus says he will never leave us nor forsake us because his spirit dwells within us. So even when you are sitting alone on a desert island, you're not without Christ. This verse is not saying you had to go find somebody in order to have Christ with you. What he's pointing out is his body is represented by the assembling of the saints. He's saying that his corporate body, his physical presence on earth, becomes evident when two or more are gathered. It says that when you are alone, you're not presenting the body of Christ to the world. He's with you personally, but you and your representative role of Christ on earth, you're not representing Christ by yourself as you could be if you were combined with others. You have an opportunity and an obligation to combine with others in the body of Christ so that corporately you're serving the purpose he has intended. The collected presence of the church is the physical manifestation of Christ's body on earth in these days while we await his personal return. That union of many parts into one is accomplished through our sharing of the one spirit of God. As the spirit indwells all of us, he becomes our connective tissue, our sinew to unite the parts of this body into a single organism. In verse 13, Paul calls the collective indwelling of the spirit one baptism. This is another verse that throws a lot of people for a loop. And it's so simple. It's regrettable that so many people have run off with this verse and done some strange things with it. Paul, as he taught earlier, says we have received the same spirit upon coming to faith. That indwelling moment as we came to faith is a baptism of sorts, a baptism of the spirit in the sense that we are immersed in the spirit of God forever. We are then cleansed by the blood of Christ. It is an immersion of spirit, a cleansing of blood in spiritual terms. So anyone who has come to faith in Christ has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The reason we do water baptism is to picture in physical ways what's happened to us in this spiritual way. The water baptism is a picture of the spirit baptism that takes place at the moment of your coming to faith. Paul says we've all shared in this common baptism. So it's as if we're all in the same body of water, spiritually speaking. We're all under the water together because we've been immersed in the same spirit. One baptism. Notice again, Paul emphasizes that all believers, no matter their origins, no matter their human circumstances, we are all unified, at least on these terms, if nothing else. We can all speak a different language. We can all have a different cultural background. But he says, when you look at it from a spiritual point of view, we're all the same because we've all received the same spirit. Also, notice the tense of the verb that Paul uses. He says, we were made to drink of the one spirit. A reminder that we play no part in the coming of the spirit, no part in the equipping in the spirit, no part in deciding the particular spiritual gift that comes our way. We were made to drink of one spirit to the outcome God intended, salvation and spiritual gifting. Then in verses 
14 through 21, he moves through the analogy. And he does it in such an effective way. He says the human body is many parts working together for the benefit of the body. We understand that. But the fact that a foot is so fundamentally different than your hand in what its purpose is and in how you use it and all the rest, that doesn't mean it's any less a member of your body. And no one disputes this. This is the power of the analogy. No one would challenge that concept. It's not as though the hand is the standard by which you judge whether something can be considered part of your body or not. If something can't grab, if it can't point, if it can't lift, then it's not worth being a part of your body. No one thinks like that. So your hand is not the standard by which you judge whether something is useful, whether it's necessary, whether it's part of the body. And furthermore, the foot doesn't look at the hand and pout and say to itself, well, I can't do what a hand can do, so I'm not worthy. Most four-year-olds could understand this. The beauty of this analogy is it's self-evident. Next, Paul points out the absurdity, though, of the same attitude when brought into the body of Christ. If a body could be designed with only one kind of part, and he uses the examples of an ear or a nose or an eye or whatever, he says, if the body could be designed with only one kind of part, what would you have? It would be hideous, it would be unworkable, and it would be useless. It would be a useless thing. If the ear got its way and it could become an eye, then Paul says, well, where would the body be on the day that it needed hearing? What would result? We need our hearing just as much as we need our eyesight, of course. And in fact, in some situations, we need hearing even more than we need eyesight. There's a story of a husband who was concerned about his wife losing her hearing. And he goes to the doctor one day and he he tells the doctor, I think my wife is deaf. I have to keep repeating myself. I always have to say things multiple times before she finally listens to me and, and responds. And the doctor says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go home. I want you to start about 15 feet behind your wife when she can't see you. And I want you to say something to her. And if she doesn't respond, I want you to move five feet closer and say it again. And if that doesn't work, keep moving until she responds. And we'll get a better sense of just how bad her deafness is at this point. So sure enough, he goes home and he does exactly as he's instructed. The wife's in the kitchen. She doesn't know he's there. He comes in from behind. He, he says, what's for dinner, honey? No response. And so he gets a little closer, repeats it. Still, he hears no response. Then he gets a little closer. And finally, he decides he walks right up behind her and yells right at her. What's for dinner? And she says for the fourth time, it's vegetable soup. (laughs) So hearing is more important than sight sometimes. In the body, everything is a purpose. Everything's useful in its own way. Nothing can be judged according to the usefulness of something else. In the body of Christ... It's no different. Paul says that verse 18. He says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desires. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. 
Now, in the body of Christ, the Lord, we're told, has placed a diversity of members, each gifted as he's desired. And in God's wisdom, he's determined what gifts each person will have. And moreover, when the group gathers, what that diversity will be. He knows from the beginning of time who would be in this room on a given day or who would be part of this church for a period of time. And so he has distributed gifts with that in mind. And that wisdom of distributing gifts ensures that the purpose of this gathering is met. So now we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose? What is the goal? It cannot be, and Paul says this clearly here, he says the goal cannot be to force everyone in this body to exhibit the same spiritual gift, even if that were possible, because it would defeat the purpose he had in the diversity. A unified expression of gifts would be like a body made up of only eyes. It's absurd. So in verse 19, Paul makes the application. If everyone in the church has exactly the same spiritual gift, what kind of body would result, he says. Imagine the conflict if everyone in here had exactly the same spiritual gift. Let's say everyone had the gift of teaching. At first glance, you might think, well, that's a wonderful thing. We'd have a lot of teaching. Well, certainly we would hope to. But think of the conflict of everyone stepping over one another, trying to serve to the body in exactly the same way. Imagine all the needs that go unmet as a result of having such a one-sided gifting. Imagine all the confusion. Imagine all of the uselessness of that outcome. Too much of a good thing is certainly a bad thing in this case. Just as the body, the human body, needs a diversity of parts, so does the body of Christ. Every member of the body in here or in any church has a place, has a purpose, So that no one member in here can turn to another and say they are more important or that the other is unnecessary. Just as the body parts could not do that to each other. Just as our eye needs our hand and our head needs our feet in order for the body to be complete and functioning, Paul says, so it is in the body of Christ. We are all equally important. We are all equally necessary. That is, if our goal is to be a healthy, useful body for Christ. But if your goal is to be useful and helpful and glorifying to Christ, then diversity is what you need. Now, Paul goes a step further here, and this is the most powerful part of his passage. He says those members of our body who seem weaker are actually the most important members of this body. Notice in verse 22, Paul describes them as those who seem weaker. They seem weaker in the sense that they are in need of our particular spiritual gifting. For example, from the perspective of a gifted teacher, the one who is in need of teaching could be said to be weaker in that respect. They seem to be weaker. To the one who's gifted in prayer, the one who needs their prayer can seem to be weaker in that moment. To the one who's gifted in service, that brother or sister in need of their care is weaker in that respect. But it's a weakness of need. We're saying they have a need that has to be satisfied, and in that respect, they seem weaker. Obviously, though, that relationship cuts both ways. When someone in the church needs our particular form of spiritual gifting, they are the weaker to us. But when we need their spiritual gifting, we are the weaker to them. So in this context, weakness simply refers to spiritual need within the body, a need that others in the body are gifted to accommodate. So Paul says the weaker members of the body are not to be seen as weaker On the contrary, they're necessary, necessary for the health of the body. That sounds contrary, doesn't it? It's contrary to human expectation, for sure. We naturally assume that the strongest church would be that church in which you find no weak members. 
What if we could construct a body in which there's no one in here that needs any teaching because they got it all? No one who needs any prayer because they're covered. No one who needs any service because they're self-dependent. No one who needs any help from anyone else in any area of spiritual need. Is that a strong church? Paul says that would be the worst possible result. Everyone is self-sustaining. No one in any need. No ministry takes place. That is not the strongest church. The strongest church are those where there are many so-called weak members residing and an equal number of those who can serve those needs. Notice again in verse 23, Paul says, These weaker members are those who we deem as less honorable. They're not actually less honorable, but until we appreciate the true purpose of the church, we're likely to perceive them as less honorable. The weaker members of our body are actually, Paul says, the most important members in this church because the church exists to bestow honor upon them. We honor the weaker because we serve them. The reason we gather, the reason we do this thing we call church, the reason we're called to be two or three gathered in his name is because of the weaker members. Take away the weaker members, we have no reason to gather. How so? Because everything we do as a body is designed to meet a spiritual need somewhere in this room. Why am I teaching? Well, hopefully it's because you need to learn something. When I come to the gathering, I find my purpose in teaching those who need to be taught. If you knew all of what I know and more, where would my purpose be in coming to this building? How am I to be edified through service? How are you to be blessed through someone's service? How am I honoring anyone if they don't need me? If I'm to use my gift of teaching, I must have someone who needs teaching. But if there's no one weaker with respect to teaching, then I would have no one to serve. So I lose a couple of things. I lose my chance to develop my gift, to mature in my gift. And if I cannot develop in my gifting, I also lose the blessings that God holds out to us when we serve in our gift. So I'm not only losing something now, I'm losing eternal opportunity because the blessings that God holds out to us, the eternal treasure, he says, can be ours, is contingent on our service to him. And our service is to be done in his strength, not our own. Otherwise, it's a work of the flesh, which means it has to be a service done in my gifting. But if my gifting finds no need, well, it's a dead end. If it could be the case that you have a spiritual gift in here right now that does not find a need in here, and I seriously doubt that's true, but let's say for argument's sake that were true, you need to go find another church. Being here without the chance to serve completely defeats the purpose of the gathering for your sake. You don't get attendance credit. It's not about showing up and having been attending church. This is not a spectator sport. This isn't an entertainment venue, and that's self-evident when I'm speaking, right? This is an opportunity to gather and serve the weaker member, and the weaker being defined as the one who needs your spiritual strength, whatever your gift may be. Truly, that makes the weaker the most important. And so that communal process of the hand needing the foot and the foot needing the hand is what makes the body function and makes every part useful. Paul says in verse 23, the body's purpose is to make the less presentable members of the body into more presentable members. So the Lord is in the business, we're told, of bestowing honor upon weaker members by sending to them stronger members who can serve them in their need. We gather to pray for those who need prayer. We gather to serve because there's those in here who need our service. We gather to encourage because there's those in here who need our encouragement. We gather to teach because there's those in here who need teaching. We gather so that our collective strengths may serve our collective weaknesses. 
Sometimes we're going to be the one who's the less presentable. Sometimes we're the one who is the more presentable. Collectively, we are growing and being gathered to be strengthened spiritually. Paul says this in another place very succinctly. Ephesians 4, he speaks to the purpose of the equipping with the outcome being the strengthening. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 11 through 16, he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. And there's the body analogy again. To him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body... And I love this being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. You hear that we're fitted and we're held together. How? By what every joint supplies. And then he says, according to the proper working of in each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's your purpose for coming together. It's not to hear John, it's not to hear me, it's not to be in the room, it's not to get credit for attendance, it's not because you feel guilty if you stay home on a Sunday morning, it's not for any of those reasons, it's to come use your gift and be served by someone else who has a gift you need. If you don't serve, or if you don't avail yourself of someone's service, you're just in neutral, spiritually speaking. You're just sitting on the side of the road, and sooner or later time runs out. We don't want to do that. I mean, we we shouldn't want to do that. Paul says the various roles of service as they exist in any body with all of the respective giftings that are involved, are built into the body to serve and create spiritual maturity so that the body is strengthened. And he says, as an outcome, we attain to a unity of faith, like the body working together. We attain to the stature of Christ, maturing in our faith. We all grow into all aspects of him because of the fitting and the working together. What a beautiful picture. It reminds us that there's no part of us in here that is irrelevant or that can be you know, tossed aside, there's, there's no part of us that's optional in the body of Christ. In verse 26, back to 1 Corinthians, in verse 26, Paul says that as one suffers or rejoices, so do the rest. And the reason is because our very existence on earth is so closely connected to one another. Remember, friends, as Christians, we have been left on earth. There's really no reason we should be here if the whole point of our life on earth was to bring us to Christ and nothing more. For if that were the full extent of our reason to still be here, God would have just taken us home the moment he saved us. Because what would be the point in leaving us here for a little while longer? This isn't our permanent home. This isn't our permanent body. Why waste time with with the old things that are going away? The Bible says the reason is so that in the gathering, spiritual maturity develops. Not physical, but spiritual, which then carries into the kingdom. This is our chance to become who we can be in Christ so that as we enter into the kingdom, that measure of a man or woman that we are will be the measure of who we are in Christ when we enter the kingdom. Yes, you'll have a new body, but your spiritual development is set here. The very purpose of our earthly lives is the gathering to the causing that the body would grow spiritually. And now we have our third principle to add to the two we've learned already At the beginning of this chapter, we learn that spiritual gifts come by the spirit, by way of our salvation. Everyone gets the same spirit. Everyone has the same measure. No one is more honorable. No one is more 
uh, desired because of their gift. And then secondly, we learned that the gifts in the body are assigned by God for purposes God intends. There is an intended diversity, and that diversity plays to the purpose God has in building up the people of God. And now, lastly, the third thing Paul has taught, we learn that the purpose of the gift is that we would serve one another in meeting needs with strengths, with meeting weakness and strength, a matching up of these two things. If no one needs our gift, then we cease having a purpose in the body of Christ. And that's not who we are. That's not how it is. We can be assured there's always someone who needs what we have. Now, it would be absurd for everyone in the body to be gifted in the same way because it would completely defeat the purpose of what God has planned in his body. That ending point and all of the principles that led into it becomes the basis for Paul to leave teaching and to begin correction. As we're going to see in future weeks, Paul is now going to go into famously into chapter 13, the chapter of love. We read it at weddings, but frankly, there's nothing to do with weddings. It actually has nothing to do with love in that sense. It has nothing to do with marital love at all. It can be applied there, certainly, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is with regard to spiritual gifts. If you want to do what loving looks like in the body of Christ, then you need to use them in the way they're intended and not abuse them. And as we leave chapter 12 and into chapter 13, Paul's going to teach on the more excellent way of using gifts so that when he gets to chapter 14, he can rip the church apart for what they've been doing in abusing spiritual gifts completely contrary to their intended purpose. And to know that, we'll have to have this background in our hip pocket so that we can remember all the way through how they come, why they come, how they're supposed to be used, and then in chapter 13, what their ultimate aim is in love, so that when we get to chapters 14, we'll understand what's not to be done. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for gifting each of us and meeting our needs through the strength of others. I'm convicted, Father, as I think about this topic and as I can reflect on what you've taught in your word, I'm convicted that we never take pride in our gift. We never assume it's a reflection on us. We never count the work we do in our gift as a credit to us. And at the same time, Father, we never diminish ourselves. We never consider that we cannot add something to the body. We never think that we aren't capable of being used, for even that is pride. It suggests that it must be done in our own power if it is to be worth anything to you. And and that is just not the truth. And I, I ask, Father, that you would convict each of us on these things, that we have value, that you have given us a gift for a reason, and that we are to put it to work. But as we use it, as we meet needs, we aren't haughty. We are not thinking ourselves better than we should. And that we would strive, Father, to make the most of what you have given us, taking nothing for granted, taking every day as an opportunity to serve to seek out those who need us so that we might serve them better. And then as we have needs, Father, I pray that we'd have the humility to reach out, to seek help, to admit where we can't do the things that need to be done or where we are inadequate to the purpose that you have in our life and that you would then send us those who can strengthen us. Thank you, Father, for a church that has a mind to serve you and can do that in your will and in your power. Let us come back in weeks to come, always ready to learn, always at your feet, Father, and Perhaps, if your will would allow it, we'd, we'd prefer to bring others with us. For the strength that comes with more in this room is self-evident now that we understand gifts. More needs, more opportunities to serve, more strengths, more ways to be served. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.